Can y'all believe that we're on week six, y'all? Only two weeks left after this one. We're almost there. Yay. You're getting there. We're getting there. Um, so I think in your books, that's on page 32 if y'all want to turn there, or the note-taking page if y'all want to do that is on page 38. And we can um, talk about that in depth. This week's passage is um, kind of a continuation of last week's where he, Paul was giving some pretty serious instructions to the church. His instructions to the Ephesians at that point were all about how the church should behave in light of the gospel, the implications, like the practical implications of the gospel on the life of the church. And he kind of shifts his focus here, and he's still talking about the lives of believers, but he gets kind of personal as far as what he's talking about. He's talking about the way they interact with other people, their public lives, but also their private lives, very much so when you get to chapter 5, when he's talking about sexual immorality and all that kind of stuff. And what we see is that practically speaking, the gospel has implications for all areas of our life. It is not something that you can believe in your head without it having an effect on the rest of your life. It's not just something that you can say you believe without acting like you believe it too. And that is what Paul is really driving home to them is that, okay, you say you believe this, now we have to act like it. So I'm going to read this passage starting in um, chapter 4, verse 17, all the way through 521. So get ready to listen. Here we go. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun down go on your, sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That was a long passage. Hey, a, whole, a whole chapter. Um, what's going on here is Paul is setting up this really vivid contrast between... Um, the two main types of people that we see in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, like in Proverbs and all that kind of stuff. What, when you think of Proverbs, what do you think about um, the two types of people? It talks about the, the fool, right? You have the fool on one hand, and the fool is really, really dumb. I mean, they do the stupidest things, and their lives are just, you know, not good. Nobody wants to be a fool. And on the other hand, you have the wise. And so he's spending this time, he's setting up this dichotomy between the two of them and he's drawing this very vivid picture of what the foolish life looks like and what the wise life looks like and he's telling them those who are in Christ are wise and he is redefining those words based on the gospel so um, when we think of someone who is wise we tend to think of someone who is smart right they're like super smart we talk about book wisdom and knowledge and how they may have a PhD they might be a professor but that is not what wisdom is when we're talking about the Bible wisdom according to the Bible is living in the fear of the Lord walking in ways that line up with God's ways and living a prudent and thoughtful life based on what you know about God the fool on the other hand is the one who does not follow the ways of the Lord, and they may be very, very smart by the ways of the world. They may have all the book learning they have, but they're foolish because they have rejected the ways of God. And so to set up these contrasts um, throughout this passage, Paul uses three different pairs of contrasts. One of them is the new and the old life. And that's what he's talking about in this first section here. Um, He really breaks it down in chapter 4, verse 17 through chapter 5, verse 2. Okay? And if you think way back to week 1, when we talked about Ephesus and the surrounding culture, do you remember anything about the kind of culture that was going on in Ephesus? Anything at all? There was a temple there. Do you all remember who it was for? Artemis. Good job. Ding, ding. And it was four times the size of the Parthenon. Okay? 
So when you think about the Parthenon, that's usually the one that we think of when you think of a Greek temple with the columns and all that. The temple to Artemis was four times as big. It was huge, okay? And every year they had a festival for Artemis. It was like a week-long thing. And there were games and theater shows and like the whole city gathered around. Like think about all the 4th of July kind of celebrations we have. And there's parades and parties and barbecues and cookouts. And everybody's doing something somewhere. There's city celebrations. There's church celebrations. There's all this kind of thing. And that's just for one day. But this festival for Artemis lasted the whole week. And there was all kinds of stuff going on. There was a big theater in the middle of town that could seat like 25,000 people. And so for Christians, then not to be involved in something like that made them markedly different from the culture that they lived in. They were, um, they were literally, to convert to Christianity was to literally walk away from their entire way of life. Not only was the Temple of Artemis a big deal, but they were part of the Roman Empire. And... Um, There was also an imperial cult. Do you know anything about the imperial cult? Imperial is the emperor, the kind of royal kind of stuff. The imperial cult um, forced Roman citizens to worship the emperor. And so if you were going to be involved in any kind of civic responsibilities in the city, if you were going to hold any kind of position of leadership, then you also had to ascribe your fealty and give honor to, pay homage to the emperor in this way. And so to be a Christian was to reject all that sort of thing too. That means that you could not be a part of these things. You could not, um, you know, accept this position because you would have to then say a blessing to the emperor before you started your meeting. Very much the same way we open with prayer and a lot of our things, um, they would do the same thing for the emperor or for Artemis. And so the culture that they were in was um, just very different from the culture that we are in. And I think it's hard for us to understand sometimes what it really meant for them to leave their old way of life behind. Because especially here in the South, where we are in the middle of the Bible Belt, um, even people who are not necessarily practicing Christians are cultural Christians. Does that make sense? They still say they believe in God. They still say they believe in the Bible. And yeah, that's true. And if you tell them that your child just accepted Christ, they'll celebrate with you, even though they may not necessarily be practicing themselves. It was not that way in Ephesus. The believers were different, and people were not celebrating because they were converting. In fact, very much the opposite was true. In Acts chapter 19, we can read the account of Paul's time when he was in Ephesus. He spent about two years there, so he was there for a long time. Um. But it says, in particular, in um, chapter 19, verse 21, after Paul had been there for a while, Paul decided to, he, he was getting ready to travel to a different part of the Roman Empire. He was moving on to like Corinth and Macedonia and other places. So he was preparing to leave anyway because he had been in Ephesus for a while. But 
um, before he could leave, it says, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And that's what they called Christianity earlier on. It says, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and all the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were, with Paul, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wanted to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to go into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd promote, prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so they rioted against Paul, against the message that he was preaching in Ephesus. And it was not, um, it was not an easy place to be a Christian because this is what they were facing, literally. And so when Paul writes to them and says in chapter 4, verse 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, he's saying you cannot have anything to do with this old way of life. You are called to be different. And that is exactly what he's asking them to do. He says that their old life, um, the way of the Gentiles was characterized by futility of thinking. What is something that is futile? It's like pointless. It's worth, like you don't even bother with something that's futile because you know that your labor isn't going to produce any kind of results. And so Gentiles, what he's saying here is that their, their, fut their thinking is futile because their thinking isn't centered on the Lord. Okay, and you notice here that he is back to referring to the Gentiles, where back a few chapters ago, he told the believers that he was writing to that they were no longer Jews and that they were no longer Gentiles. Now they are one new person. They have been created into a new type of person by Christ. And so he's saying, Gentileness is in your past. That's not something that you can be anymore. It says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to, up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Foolish living by these definitions are caused is caused by foolish thinking. Okay? So their thinking is wrong. They think that God is not real. They think that Artemis is the greatest that there is. They think that their way is better. And so it leads to wrong behavior because their thinking is off. And it, the opposite is also true, by the way. Right thinking, 
when your mind is in the right place, when you are focused on God's ways and your mind is stayed on His Word, that leads to right desires. You want to be more like Christ. You want to be more like God, which leads to right behavior. And so there has to be this transformation of the mind in order for our actions and hearts to be transformed as well. It, it kind of all goes together. But people who are outside of Christ are so desensitized to sin that they don't even recognize it as sin anymore. You can't call it a sin. Just think about even the culture that we live in. The biggest sin is to call something that someone else is doing a sin. Like nothing is a sin except calling sin, sin, right? You're, you're not allowed to do that, but you can do anything else you want. That's totally fine. And so um, people become desensitized to it. Their hearts become callous. And that was true then. It's still true now. Um, what's the point of a callus? What does a callus do? It toughens up your skin, right? So Micah just learned how to do the monkey bars not too long ago. I mean, for the longest time she was scared, but like she'd hang on and swing back and forth, and then she would drop off crying because her hands hurt. You know, they'd be all red, and she couldn't do it because her hands hurt from the monkey bars. But she kept trying, and eventually that skin on her hands toughened up, and she could go the whole way across without flinching because calluses dull our senses. They make it easier to do things like the monkey bars or play the guitar. You know, guitar players have calluses on their fingers. Those wires aren't cutting into them anymore. Um, they, by dulling our senses, they make it easier to do things that might otherwise hurt. And the same thing is true when our hearts become calloused. We can't feel, don't recognize the damage that sin is causing as it is going on because we have become callous to it. And that's what Paul is saying here. Those who are apart from Christ, um, they engage in this reckless, sinful behavior because they, they don't even feel the pain of it anymore. They're so used to it that it becomes normal. <clears throat> and, they, and they don't even recognize it as a bad thing. Um, and he, he paints this really black picture, right? There is nothing good with these people at all. Um, they are the blackest of black, the darkest of dark. Sinfulness is just, he paints it in really dark colors. It is not good. Um, and one of the translations that I read said for verse 19, it says, Having lost all moral sensitivity... They have given themselves over to debauchery and purity and covetousness. So who walks around saying the word debauchery? It's part of your normal vocabulary, right? No? What? Like I think of like pirates and, you know, not good things. Sorry. Um, it's just one of those words like that that has fallen out of use. But does anyone know what it means? Like does it make you think of like really bad things? Really, really, really bad. Um, it, it has this sense of um, excess to it, this like indulging, overindulging of just like it's not just one instance where you slipped and messed up. It is like a continual um, indulgence of sinful desires to where it has this essence of um, sexual sin implied in it, like. It's, it's got that kind of feel to it, but it, it's more than that. 
it's it's beyond like it's beyond um say just premarital sex and it is this really bad kind of perverted desires kind of thing just like it goes past normal bad and gets to the really really I cannot talk today all I can say is really really bad um it goes beyond the pale of what we normally consider bad and it was like here it is on the line bad and then it's like way over here it's like past bad and and it's that way because it is this overindulgence to where um people who practice that sort of lifestyle they can live in this sense to where they are constantly filling themselves up and they never tell themselves no and they're just doing whatever they want to do because they feel like it and because they had this urge and hey it feels good so why don't I do that and there's this licentiousness like everything is okay um, there's a license to do whatever you want to do because you know if I didn't if it wasn't okay then why would I feel that way you know why would I have this urge if it wasn't okay for me to do it and so it's just past the extreme. It is past the norm. And so it is unchecked, unrestrained behavior, wantonness. There you go. There's another one of those words that we don't use very often anymore. Uh, but you know what I mean. It includes all sorts of immoral behavior. And what Paul is saying is when our thinking is not stayed on God, then we are prone to this naturally. All of us, apart from God, are prone to this naturally. But it's not the end of the story, he says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. Over and against this sort of culture and this sort of sexual license and debauchery and wanton behavior, over against all of that, Paul says, believers are to imitate God and to represent Him in righteousness and in holiness. Specifically, they're told to put off the old self and put on the new self, the one that has been recreated in the image and the likeness of God. It says in verse 20, That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And y'all, this passage, when I read this, it makes me think of what not to wear. I know, crazy, right? Does anybody, did anybody else, I, I watched it all the time, like I never missed an episode, and I lived in constant fear when I was in college that Stacy and Clinton were about to jump out and like grab me. Emily knew me in college, and so um, I'm not that I was terrible, my wardrobes were not as bad as it, but like I lived in t-shirts and holy jeans and like my hair unwashed in a bun, and like even when I was older and like married and in seminary, like I still went to classes like that. Like that is just how I was. And I was like, one of these days, somebody's going to jump out and tell me to start dressing my age and to stop acting like this. I could not, you know, I just, I, that was how I was. I lived in fear of Stacey and Clinton all the time. Okay. So maybe like my college girl outfits were not that bad. Okay. Maybe not. But did anybody else watch it? Yes. Okay. Some of them were really, really bad. There's like, you know, the paralegal who wears clubbing clothes to work. You know, she's got on those shorty short dresses and like the, the cut down to here, you know, she's showing everything and it was not appropriate 
for her work situation, right? And so what do Stacey and Clinton do? They sweep in, they say, they trash the old wardrobe, they tell them how horrible it is and usually make the girl cry. You know, it's not good, but they tell, they tell them every time, this is not appropriate for who you are. You cannot dress like this and be a paralegal at the same time. You are a paralegal. Act like one. And so they would throw all that stuff away. They would give them rules, right? They would say, you need to look for, it was always a jacket, you know, that cinches right here, you know, at the, at the tiniest part of your waist, it should button up. You know, they have to find the jacket. They have to, you know, find appropriate clothing. They always gave them three, three outfits to look at. This is what you should be shooting for. And then they would send them off shopping. The girls would go shopping. They had $5,000. Who wouldn't like $5,000 to spend on a new wardrobe, right? I mean, I would. Sign me up. Even though it would be embarrassing if Stacey and Clinton jumped out at you, the $5,000 sounds good to me. So they throw all their old clothes away. They get brand new ones. And at the end of the show, after their hair and their makeup, the transformation is staggering, right? The girls walk out, and every time Stacy says, shut the front door, you know? <laughs> I mean, the, the transformations, they were jaw-dropping, right? Everybody likes a good makeover story. I do, you know? But it would be crazy for those girls, for those women, to go back and wear their old clothes when they have this brand new wardrobe that fits who they really are. We would be crazy to go back to our lives of sin when Christ has recreated us in His image. And Paul is saying that as believers, it is not appropriate for us to engage in behavior that does not reflect Christ because we are His and he has remade us after his image. And if y'all flip back to me to chapter 2, this is another and you were once passage that we talked about. This is the one and you were once dead, but God has now made you alive. For by grace you have been saved through faith. But then if you look down in chapter 2 verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so before we walked in sin, our lives before were marked by sin and death. But now our lives, this new creation that we have been made in Christ, our lives are now marked by good works. Our lives are now marked by His character because He has remade us into something new and better than we were before. And so, in case they were still wondering what that meant, what does it mean to live in the image of God, right? Um, Paul gets very specific in the following verses, and he gives this long list of things, vices and virtues, I guess, if you want to call it that, like the bad thing that you should not be doing and the good thing that you should be doing instead. And so he says, gives them examples. This is what it looks like to imitate God. He says, put away falsehood and speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. And that one's not so hard, right? Most of us try to be honest, right? I mean, maybe a white lie every now and then to your children about whether or not you took their money. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. No, none of us would ever do that. None of us. Um, 
No, but putting away falsehood, why? Why would we, why is it important for us to be people of our word? Well, here he says, because we are members one of another. But there's another reason, too. We keep our word and we speak truthfully and honestly because God speaks truthfully and honestly and because God keeps his word. And he is faithful to his word, so we must also be faithful to ours in order to reflect him. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Y'all, this is a hard one. Like, we may not think it is, but it is so hard. Um, And maybe it's just me. I'm not going to accuse you of having the same weaknesses as I do. But, so I'll just go ahead and say I instead of we. I... (laughs) am a person um, who really struggles with holding grudges. Um, And I may not be like outwardly angry, but when someone wrongs me or I have a perceived wrong, like they offended me, whether it was intentional or not, oh y'all, I can hold a grudge, like nobody's business. And you may not ever notice it, or you might, but like in my heart, Every time I see them, I will think about that one time that they said that one thing that I really did not like. Tell me I'm not the only one. (laughs) Right? And so we skim these verses and we think, yeah, that's good. I don't have an anger problem. Y'all, we are no better than them. This is is us he's talking to. Um, But we're Southern, so we can be sweet while we're being angry. Right? (laughs) We could say, bless her heart. Heart, you know, I mean, we, we know how to do it. <laughs> that is not okay. <laughs> that is not okay. Um, we are called to be better than that, not to hold on to the anger. Because why does it say here? It says um, in verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. When we hold on to our anger, we are opening the door wide open for Satan to come in and play. <laughs> We're inviting him to wreak havoc over our lives. We're giving him an area where he can control us rather than letting the love of Christ shape us and um, control us. We're letting that anger, that emotion control us instead. And then he goes on um, in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. We never talk about anybody, do we? Never. (laughs) Never, ever, ever. Not even, you know, to our best friend. (laughs) No snarky text messages from us to anyone, right? No? Just me? (laughs) Just, yeah. Um, But instead, we should only say those things that are good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may may give grace to those who hear. So, what did Thumper's mom tell him? Thumper Thumper was a boy. Yes. What did Thumper's mom tell him in Bambi? If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Okay, so that's a really simplified version, but the same thing. You know, keep it to yourself. Keep your mouth shut. That's a hard one because we like to talk. Um, 
that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Y'all, what he's saying is when we do these things, when we um, give in to those natural inclinations of ours, um, we are grieving God's Spirit. We are upsetting God. We are, we are not reflecting His ways. We're reflecting the world's ways. And the thing about this is that all of this, none of this is possible on our own. Like, naturally, we are all inclined to seek our own good over others. We don't like to admit it, but it's just how, that's how we, how we are. Um, without the work of the Holy Spirit in us, changing us and transforming us, then it is impossible for us to live up to these standards that He's given. And so while we may be able to read the first part of this passage where he's talking about the debauchery and the wantonness and the impurity and we think, that's not me, I'm good. You get down to this part of the list and it hurts a little bit more, right? It stings because what he's saying is there is no one exempt from this. And even if you have the big areas right, it's the little things that matter too. You know, there is still work to be done. Um, as far as transforming us in the image of Christ. And so he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Y'all, this is not easy. This is hard. It's a continuous work of the Spirit in our lives, and it's something that we have to work at, and we constantly have to check ourselves because there's always going to be somebody who offends us. There's always going to be a moment when we want to snap back at someone or make a sarcastic comment or talk about someone behind their backs. There is always that inclination. That is never going to go away. And so the only way that we can overcome those inclinations is by the work of the Spirit. And um, continual prayer, I think. Remember that prayer that we talked about last week where Paul prayed for the Spirit to empower them, to grant them knowledge of God? When we turn our eyes upon Jesus and we look at Him and we look at His ways, um, then we naturally want to be more like Him instead of the world. And the thing is, it's the most powerful witness that we have. You can say that you are a believer all you want to. You can say that you love Jesus. You can say that you love God, that you go to Bible study on Monday nights. You can say all sorts of things. You can go to church every week. You can write a check. You can be a faithful tither. But if you do not live your life in a way that points to Jesus, then nobody will ever hear a word you have to say about him because your life is screaming a different message. And so the way that we treat other people matters. I tell my girls that all the time. What we say matters and how we say it matters. We should always seek to be kind and loving and show grace and show mercy, all of those things. Now that doesn't mean that um, we sacrifice truth for the sake of being nice. It's not the same thing. Um, But it does mean that when we have an opportunity 
to show kindness instead of anger, to offer forgiveness rather than holding that grudge, then we should do it because that, that's exactly what God has done for us. He has forgiven us. He has given himself up for us. He did the hard thing. He was the bigger person. He was the one who was offended by our sin, and yet he came and he made it right. He took that first step for us. And so we need to be the kind of people who are representing that kind of love and that kind of sacrifice in the world. Okay, so that first kind of section, we talked about the new life. The new life is different from your old life because your new life is ordered by God. It is set to imitate God, to reflect His ways to the world. And then he moves on in the next section, um, chapter 5, verses 3 through 14, to kind of talk life in the light, the enlightened life. He's setting up the difference between darkness and light. And um, he says that we as believers are children of the light, and so therefore we should shine the light in all of these dark corners of the world. And in verse 3 it says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, so he has talked about our life in the church, how the gospel affects the way we interact with each other as a church. That was last week. He has talked about how it affects our public lives, you know, forgiving people, being kind to them, don't steal, all this. Now he's getting even more personal, and he's talking about how the gospel affects your sex life. You didn't think it mattered, but it does. And he's saying there is no area of life that is left untouched by the gospel. There is no part of life that is not changed and transformed by Christ and that is not subject to the will of God. And so um, I think we do this sometimes. We think God can have all of that. He can control everything, but I'm going to hold on to this. Like this part, this is me. And it's hard for us sometimes to let go of these things. Um, but what Paul is saying is, no, if you are going to be Christ, you have to let him be Lord of all of your life, not just this part and that part, but all of it. He is Lord of all. And... In our current culture, um, this is something that is completely foreign, right? To say that, to, to even propose the thought that the Bible has any relevance to sexual ethics. Um, I mean, we're being blasted out of the water here for saying that, for even imagining that, that, that such a thing might be true. Um, we are in a culture that by and large has changed. It feels like overnight. Um, I remember, I mean, I remember back when we were in college, I was, and, um, Will and Grace was on. You remember when Will and Grace started coming on? And it was like so scandalous, <laughs> you know, because, oh my goodness, they're gay, you know, and think about it now. Like, it was like that one show back then. 
But now think about how it is. You're hard-pressed to find a show that does not have a gay couple in it now. And that is just, I mean, I, I was in college. I started college in 2000. So, you know, in the past 16 years, that is a rapid culture shift. Light, I mean, the world is changing around us. And we are getting to the point now where people are saying that, um, that the Bible sh has no relevance to their sexual orientation, their sexual identity, that they, you know, that it doesn't matter. But that is not the case. It does matter because God cares about who we are, each one of us, all of us. And, and when we talk about sexual sins, um, the biggest sin is not the behavior. It's not the sexual behavior. It's not the homosexuality or the premarital sex or the living with a boyfriend. It's not that. That is not the biggest sin. The biggest sin is the refusal to believe that God has any authority over your life. It's the rejection of God's authority. And so what Paul is saying here, when he says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He's saying those who continue to indulge their own wills over and above the will of God are clearly not citizens of the kingdom of heaven because they have not subjected themselves to the rule of God. Does that make sense? They refuse to be subject to God, therefore they are not his subjects. Now, he is not saying that Christians never mess up and that Christians never sin. What he is saying that is that those who continuously make that choice to live against the decree of God are not God's people because people who belong to God want to be like him. Um, I brought this book with me. I read it a long time ago, way back in high school, The Pursuit of Holiness. And it, it was it's a great book. It's about... Imagine what? Pursuing holiness. But one thing that has always stuck with me out of this book is that he says that true salvation brings with it a desire to be made holy. And so if you believe that Jesus is God's son and if you have surrendered your life to him and accepted him as your savior, then you must also believe that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. And the Holy Spirit evokes change in our lives. And so if there is no change in a life, then we may conclude that perhaps the Spirit is not there. You know? And in the church especially, it is not okay for those who profess to know God, who profess to be believers, to continue in this sort of lifestyle that um, is contrary to God's word and contrary to God's will because it sends the message to the world that the gospel doesn't make a difference. It tells the world that um, you can believe in Jesus and stay exactly as you are. He doesn't want you to change. You're good. You're fine. But that's not true. He does want us to change. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to be his. Um, 
And it says in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. How many people in this day and age say, it's okay. When the Bible says, it's talking about homosexual, that's in the Old Testament. It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like that, right? And that's why it's so important to know the word and to know who God is because you can easily be led astray if you don't know what the Bible says. He says, Do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And what he's saying is, we are meant to be light in a dark world. We are supposed to be beacons of hope, um, purveyors of goodness and truth. He says, The fruit of the light is all that is good and right and true. Think about the kinds of things that hide in the dark. I mean, kids are scared of the dark for a reason, right? Because you can't see what is there. Um, Think about if you were working in your yard and you turned over a big rock, what would you find? Lots of nasty things. Spiders, worms, I mean, just all kinds of creepy crawly things that you don't want to find. But if you want to plant a flower there, a bush, a beautiful hydrangea bush or something, you got to move the rock and expose the stuff that had been hidden in darkness, right? In order for life to bloom there, you have to get rid of the darkness first. And so that's exactly what he's saying here is that um, you you cannot partake in the darkness because you are light you must instead expose the darkness for what it is. Um, You cannot be the kind of person who says, yeah, it's okay, you do what you want to do, and I'll do what I want to do, and we're okay. No. He says, you must stand up for truth. You must shine the light and, and say, what you're doing is not good. What you're doing is wrong and contrary to God's will. And when we do that, um, we are imitating God. We are showing the world what God is like because the Bible tells us that God is light, that Jesus came into the world to bring light into the world, that he shined his light into all the dark corners, and that he came to give hope. He came to bring peace. He came to bring goodness. Um, it says when we when it says here that the fruit of light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. Um, what is necessary for fruit to grow? Like if you have a fruit tree, what are the three things required? Water and soil and sun. Okay. Now think about the things that grow in the dark. Does fruit grow in the dark? No, it doesn't. Um, mold does. Mildew. Bacteria. So what kind of life would you rather be producing? You are light, walk as children of the light, and expose the darkness for what it is instead of being a part of it. 
And then he goes on in the last section in verse 15, and he start, he describes the spirit-filled life. And this is um, the direct opposite of that old life that he was talking about in chapter 4, verse 17. This is a direct contrast to it. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. They were to live lives of wisdom as opposed to lives of folly. Um, they were supposed to walk in the fear of the Lord instead of walking in the ways of the world. And we are called to the same type of behavior. Um, there's a sense of urgency in these verses. It says to redeem the time, make the best use of the time, redeem it, um, cash it in, um, don't waste it is what Paul is saying here. You only get a limited amount of time and the days that we are living in are dark they are evil. And it is time for us to be the people that God has created us to be. And if we are going to shine the light in this dark and dreary world, then we must be filled with the Spirit. And he goes on to describe this life in the Spirit. And he says that they are continuously addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, when we speak to other believers, praise should always be on our lips. We shouldn't be known for complaining and grumbling. We should be known for praise and giving thanks to God. <coughs> Thanksgiving should be the theme of our song. And then he goes on to say in verse 21 that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we'll talk more about this next week um, because it applies to, to the next section. But submitting to anyone... <laughs> is the hardest thing that any of us ever have to do. Or maybe it's just me again. I'll, ref I'll stop applying my weaknesses to you. But I am fiercely independent in, in the sense that, like, if you tell me I can't do something, <laughs> I'm most likely going to prove you that I can. You know, I want to prove you wrong. And um, it is hard for me to let go of my own self-interest and put the self-interest of someone else ahead of me. Actually, as a mom, it is harder for me to put the interest of someone else's child above my own, right? Like if a kid at the playground does something mean to my kid, um, excuse me, but you better watch what you're saying, you know? Like mama bear comes out, I'm going to like take care of my own, before, you worry about yourself, I'm going to take care of my kids, you know? Um, but what Paul is saying here is that as believers, we must submit to one another. We must consider someone else's needs as more important than our own. And we can't do this if we are focused on what we want, if we are always focused on our own desires. Um, this call to holiness that he gives us, this call to walk in wisdom, is a call um, to be countercultural in every single way. Because just as it was true then for them, it's still true for us. If we 
live, if we live out lives like he has described it here, then we will be different from the world. We will be otherworldly in the sense that we are reflecting the kingdom of heaven rather than the ways of the world around us. And that is our calling. Everything that he says here, everything that he has described is impossible apart from the Spirit. I know I've said that already, but I can't um, emphasize it enough. We cannot do this on our own because it is not natural. It is so hard. Um, And so the question for us then becomes, what kind of message are our lives sending to the world? Do we look just like them? You know? I mean, I'm not just talking about the big, the big hot button issues, you know, those sexual sins and all that that he talks about in that first section. No, the, in the little things, and the anger and the truthfulness and the language that we use, the the stories that we tell, the way that we interact with people. What message are we sending them? Are we telling them with our actions that we care more about ourselves and our own? self-advancement than we do about them or are we telling them are we literally showing them the love of Christ are we demonstrating the self-giving and self-sacrificing love of Christ to them by laying aside our own selves and choosing forgiveness when they don't deserve it um and letting them get what they want rather than what we want instead. You know, we have a chance to, to minister to people in this way, but the question is whether or not we are willing enough to lay aside ourselves and do it. Um, it's a hard thing, living the Spirit-filled life, and the only way we get it is through prayer and um, continual effort, continual um, discipline, I think, of of laying ourselves aside and putting someone else first. So, on that happy note, um, I'll pray first real quick, and then if y'all have anything y'all want to talk about or need further, we can, okay? Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the wisdom and truth that you have given to us. Father, I pray that you will help us to be your people that you would fill us with your spirit, God, that you would enable us to do these hard things, to show the world your mercy, your grace, your kindness, and your love, Lord, to be the light in the darkest of places. God, I pray that you would help us to be the type of people who are filled with the fruit of your goodness and truth. And Lord, that you would so fill us with your spirit that it just overflows from our lives, that we, we, we would be people of continuous praise, continuous thanksgiving, God, that when, when others think of us, they would not think of anything but your light that is shining through us. Father, I pray that you would overwhelm us, God, and that you would speak to the world through us. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.